As we head into a new year and leave behind a year that was challenging for just about everyone on the planet, with the hope that maybe, just maybe, this year will be a bit better for us all, we wanted to share an interview with one of the most optimistic, creative, and insightful people we know. The designer, entrepreneur, and educator, Mr. Jason Maiden. When I first interviewed Jason in 2018 for one of our Design Better Conversations, I just knew we had to get him on the podcast. He had such a unique perspective on design as a service to humanity, and I felt our audience would love to hear his story. We spoke with Jason on a wide range of topics, from how a near-death experience in childhood shaped his career and his life, to how he maintains his energy and focus, to why being a polymath is an enormous advantage in today's job market. We finished the interview on a topic that strays just a little bit from our usual subjects, but it's ultimately more important. Through all of our individual struggles, how can we benefit from recognizing our shared humanity? This is one of my favorite interviews that we've done for the show, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thanks for listening. Jason Maiden, thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast today. Uh, thank you for having me, man. I'm really excited to be part of the discussion. Let's start from the beginning. You had a pretty profound experience in your childhood when you were really young. You were seven years old. You got a blood infection and you had a near-death experience. How did that shape your career and ultimately your life? Such a uh, rich and complex question. I think a lot of the ways that it shaped my career was it redefined my orientation with time. You know, when you're seven years old and you're faced with your mortality, Something as simple as saying, hey, man, I can't wait to grow a beard. Hey, man, I can't wait to drive a car. Those are things you're thinking about that you may not ever get to experience. And so your orientation with time changes significantly, which means that how you optimize and maximize your time changes as well. And so for me, you know, I've looked at it from a career perspective of, you know, people often give you the advice, hey, man, it's a marathon, not a sprint. But when you understand the temporal nature of life and you only are guaranteed the moment you're in, you try to get the most out of each interaction. You try to be intentional with every conversation, meaningful with every experience. And so it's almost as if you come alive every day with the childlike mindset of discovery versus complacency and mastery. Like, oh, I know that already. I don't need to see that. But my entire life since the age of seven, has been through this lens of discovery. Every day I wake up, I find so much wonder and joy in the smallest things because I know how precious and fragile life is. From an overall professional as a leader, it's given me great empathy for people who can't articulate some of their pain, but you can sense it in their spirit. It's given me a lot of courage and encouragement to speak up for people who have my privileges. Because even though I am, I'm a melanated person, I don't believe in the word minority mathematically. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. But I, I'm a man and I'm born in America and I speak English as a first language. I know that that has a significant amount of privilege. And how do I use mm-hmm. that privilege to help people? That's what I think that near-death experience gave for me. is this understanding that all of us have strengths and weaknesses. All of us have an expiration date and a beginning mm-hmm. date. And it's what we do in between when we're born and when we transcend that's what matters. The in-between, you know, it's, it's the in-between because I can't change where I start, but I can define where I want to end. And at seven years old, I made a very specific choice to not waste any of my life or my time for personal selfish gain, but to empower 
and to be the manifestation of what I believe love really looks like in motion, which is caring, mm -hmm. speaking up boldly, and, and living a fearlessly authentic life. That's a powerful, powerful gift to get at such a young age. I want to just dig in a little bit more. I live in Georgia, and I'm a big fan of James Brown. And James Brown had an experience in his childhood when he was 11. He touched at a gas station. There was a, a water spigot that was mm. accidentally electrified, and he was stuck to it by the electricity until a man came over and just kind of kicked him loose, and he mm. survived. And he felt like that near-death experience, he was unstoppable. He almost thought of himself as like a superhero. And I know that you are very much inspired by and connected to superheroes in the comic world. And I wonder if that experience as a child also gave you that unstoppable power. I agree. I think, you know, the beautiful thing about those moments is Malcolm Gladwell, he's, he's coined this term called a near miss. Mm -hmm. And a near miss essentially is exposure to a traumatic experience at an age prior to around 10 or 11, because typically in childhood development, they say around eight or nine, you develop the beginnings of the adult personality. So the younger you have this moment or this near miss, you either build a certain level of resilience or you build a certain level of apprehension. It's the fight or flight mechanism we hear about in nature. It's a survival instinct. For me, what I love about it is a story I don't tell often. I don't think I've ever said it publicly is um, when I was working in my former employer, I had a moment where I was working so hard. My second child was on the way. I was studying for the GMAT, the LSAT, not GRE. Don't ever do that. That's just not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to be an attorney, a PhD, or get my MBA. I just figured I needed to keep going because I didn't want to be viewed as a person who just drew pictures because I had so many more interests. I hated the stereotype of artists not being thinkers. Like, we just make stuff. We don't think. I was like, that's ridiculous. When I was applying for grad school, I ended up blacking out one day. And this connects back to the near miss. I was folding clothes upstairs in the hallway and I lost vision in my left eye. And I was like, what is going on? I had a headache. About a month and a half before that, my aunt had a brain aneurysm. So I'm like, oh my gosh, our aneurysm's genetic? Like, is it what is going on? I go to the hospital, I go to you know ER, they do the checks. And then they said, hey, we need to see if there's a blood clot. We need to extract meningeal fluid from your spine. We need to go and actually see if you have an aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And so this guy walks into the room, they wheel me out. My wife and I, who's pregnant at the time, my son is there, wheels me into this room. He comes in super confident. I've done over a thousand, fifteen hundred extractions. I've never missed the mark the first time, all the time. I've never had an issue. You're going to be fine. This man tried seven times to get meningeal fluid out of my spine. Oh my Each time the needle bent on my spine. <laughs> It was the most painful experience I ever had. So for any person who tells their spouse, like, hey, get an epidural, trust me, I've had that feeling. It is the most painful feeling you can ever have. In that experience, the guy tells me, you have abnormally dense bones. You literally bent the needle. We cannot penetrate your spine. What happened to you? Come to find out, all those years earlier as a kid, whatever they gave me to boost my immune system, to help me physically recover messed with, I guess, my bone density composition. I'm not sure exactly how it did it or what it did, but the doctor comes in and my, my wife is nervous, my son is crying, and he grabs my hand and he says, you know what? Your dad is made out of animanium. Your dad's a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's going to be fine. <laughs> and it tripped me out because I told him my story and he sat me down and you know he was just like, look, young man, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. You've had a very, very, very 
interesting life. I, I know your story because I had to give him my history. And he said, but your most important thing you'll ever do is to be that little boy's father and that woman's husband. So make sure that while you're trying to achieve and do these things that you keep your mind centered on what you know is important to you. and You don't owe anybody anything, especially not your life. And that that changed a lot for me. It gave me that drive, that motivation. And once again, that anchoring that I have to do something that's bigger than me because my life is not, it's not for me. It's not for my own gain. I want to be a steward of these opportunities. I want to be a steward of blessings for others. I don't necessarily want to be a person that has a covetous spirit or a greedy spirit. So that's really what it's done for me in that kind of context of being a superhero. That's awesome. I didn't realize we actually had Wolverine on the podcast. Now we got to <laughs> retitle everything. <laughs> so Jason, you, you mentioned the curiosity that sort of sprung from your early childhood experience. And, and it's clear that you also have this really you know, great sense of humility too, and, and you're always learning. Talk to us a bit about how that has impacted your career, you know, going back to school, learning, you know, you're, you're basically a polymath at the, this point in these different disciplines. How has that impacted the trajectory of your career to this point? Man, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, and, a, and a beautiful use of the word polymath. I appreciate that because not a lot of people understand the importance of being a polymath in today's market. What it's done for my career is I, I had a conversation today with, with some folks and I pride myself on being congruent, you know, in every room I'm in because, you know, humility for me is a reflection of character and the things that I do when no one's looking. Reputation is the external brand that I have to live up to when people see things, you know, in me. And these various learning modalities, whether it be in school, whether it be kinesthetic learning while I teach myself how to make things or, you know, autodidactic learning while I you know, acquire new skills on my own. It keeps me in a childlike mindset and it gives me a chance to meet really interesting people that I can learn from. And I also get the good fortune of seeing other people succeed, which makes me super excited because then I know if it can happen for them, it can happen for me. In the call that I was referencing earlier, someone had mentioned like, man, Jason, you hang out with the guy. You don't even know half the stuff he's done. And then next thing you know, you know, you Google him and it's like, holy crap, this guy's so nice. But if you, you get an email from him, and you're doing business, it's like he's a totally different, like, what is going on? How could he be humble and firm? And I explain to people, it's not a matter of me picking my tone of voice or picking to pretend to be different people in different environments. Is that we live in an age where when you acquire different skill sets constantly, people don't know how to treat you. They don't know how to value you. And they don't know how to receive you. I'm naturally an introvert. It takes a lot for me to talk to people. Like that's not my natural way of being. I do it because I give myself a big giant pep talk every time <laughs> and I have my fears and my concerns and I obsess over, did I say the wrong thing? Did I hurt someone? Did I offend someone? So every time I speak, I hope people understand it's from a place of sheer love to know that something in my message hopefully can help someone. But in my spirit, I'm completely nervous. I'm scared because I don't want to, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I really care about doing the right thing. But when you have, like you said, this curiosity that I have, it's been quite difficult for people to know how to place me on teams or how to work with me. And on the same end, I get a lot of interest from a lot of people who tell me what I can do for them. And so one hand, people say, dang, I don't know how to work with you. Do I just give you stuff and let you go? The other hand, I'm constantly being told how I can help folks. But what doesn't happen is often people saying, how can we help you? Because people assume that I, I'll figure it out myself. So it's a weird relationship with knowledge acquisition and knowledge application. And I kind of sit in between both. I never think I know enough 
I never assume that my answer is the best because, you know, no one can have the best answer. And I never settle for the convenient excuse of it's difficult. I don't believe in difficult as a barrier to doing anything great. I think you just have to be willing to to endure because that's the only gift that I truly have is endurance. That's it. And I think all of us can build that muscle. And that's what, you know, my pursuit of knowledge is truly about. It's about intellectual and spiritual endurance. Because when you go back into a learner's position, you have to humble yourself. When you're in a room with people half your age doing better than you, that's a humbling feeling. And I put myself in that room often because I never want to forget how it felt to be a kid on the south side of Chicago with nothing. I don't want to feel like I'm Jason Maiden, quote unquote. I want to feel like I'm JC, the little kid from Chicago that just hoped that he can get his shot. Because the moment I start, as we say in Chicago, smelling my own cologne, then I won't be the person that people want to talk to. I'll be some arrogant design elite, blah, 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 that I just, I can't, I, I, that's not who I ever want to be. I love that you said that your superpower is endurance because it is fascinating to me that your work ethic that you bring to everything that you do. And you've talked openly about your, you know, being from Chicago and being born when you were very inspired by Michael Jordan. He certainly was a big inspiration for me as a kid and uh, it's amazing to watch. And you've said that, you know, when my competitors go to sleep, that's when I go to work. And you have this amazing work ethic. You were describing studying for multiple uh, exams simultaneously. Could you talk to us a little bit about like, it's great to want to work really hard, but then being able to keep the energy, keep the mental capacity and keep focus on your trajectory is hard to do. How do you manage to maintain the energy and that trajectory? Oh, man, that's such a great question. And no one's ever asked me that. So kudos to you, man. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> um, it's very simple. I do not want to waste my second chance at life. That's it. I mean, that's literally it. God gave me a second chance. I'm not wasting it. I'm not wasting it. I think so many people that I've experienced in life put off things tomorrow because it, it's like, oh, I'll get to it the next day. Oh, oh, I'll do it the next day. And I tell my kids something and I live by this. I call it the shopping cart theory. Everybody has the same chance to put the shopping cart back. Most people don't. And I ask my kids, why is that? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, it's because they think that somebody else would do it if they put it there because somebody else will need it. I'm the guy that walks the shopping cart and puts it back. And they ask me, well, why? Because I have the choice and because most people won't make that choice to follow through. It's about following through. And that's all my endurance is, is if you do the small things well, with integrity and with honor and with dignity, then the big things become easy. So I tell my kids, greatness is not one thing done once, it's the small things done well consistently. If you take cereal out of the, out the pantry, put the cereal box back. If you use a spoon, put the spoon in the dishwasher. If you, When you master the art of spreading your bed in the morning, putting back shopping carts, over time you get compounding energy and compounding momentum. And then you just continuously feed that with small acts of discipline and over time, you realize, holy crap, I am in perpetual motion. I am perpetually productive because I've taken care of the littlest things that the average person thinks somebody else would do. And that's really the secret to my endurance, man. You know, is it's not what people think. Like, it's this brute force, drink coffee, stay up all night. <laughs> I did that. It, it does not work. I went to the hospital for exhaustion. I had IV drips. Trust me, anybody listening to me, please don't think I'm, this is hustle 
hustle porn, as they call it. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about 24 hours. It's not that. I work eight hours a day to 10 hours, just like everybody else. It's just how I use my time is different. And that comes from the small acts of discipline. I love that. That's so great. I want to just dig into one more point here, because mm-hmm. if it were just your endurance, that would be incredible. But what takes it to the next level is you also think about your work and your life, I think, too, that, that those are very integrated for you. The, you think about it as, as a chess game. You know, you're thinking five years out of like, here's where I'm going. So mm-hmm. that hustle, if it's misdirected, is entropy. But you direct that hustle very intentionally to create mm-hmm. greater impact. Talk to us about how you take the long view. What are the habits that get you that kind of telescopic view of your life so you can lay the roadmap for where you're going? I'm a big fan of trusting the visions that you've been given. And maybe it's because of the near-death experience where I have this deep, intimate relationship with, you know, I don't push my faith on anyone, but for me, it's, it's true with, with God. Um, all of us have these visions in our mind of who we're going to become and what we want to do. We call them dreams and aspirations. The problem with settling for that word is that you think it's obtainable or it's fantasy. I believe it. I believe it. When I see something in my mind, I don't doubt that that's where I can be in the future. I don't know how I'm going to get there but I don't let fear or lack of ability or lack of network, lack of resources stop me from pursuing it. I start where I am. I saw myself at Nike before I ever actually worked there and I had no clue how I would get there. I just took every opportunity possible to ask questions, try things, and coincidentally, the loss of one opportunity to play sports and you know potentially go to college for academics and sports, transitioning to going to art school, which then led me to Nike. Same thing with going to Stanford. I saw myself at grad school. I didn't know how in the heck or when it would happen or why it would happen, but I believed that vision and I took every step possible in pursuit of like, okay, God, what is it you're trying to tell me? What is it you're trying to tell me? Then I get to that moment. I'm now currently in a pursuit of another vision that he placed on my heart years ago. And I know it, I know it's true. It's me somehow in this age, in the best shape of my life. I'm in this office, I'm in a suit, my family's there, people are happy. I've done something important that's helped a lot of people. I don't know what that is, but I'm damn sure going to keep working until until I'm in that vision. And when I look up and say, I am finally that guy in that suit doing that thing. So it's not a binary outcome where it's like, I believe something and I go and pursue it. It's more of a, every day I make the decision to put myself in the position of walking on faith, calling someone for the first time. You know, when you get that nudge, like maybe I should reach out to that person say, oh, I don't want to. Nah, me, I act on that. I always act on those small hunches, those gut feelings. I act on every single one. I don't ignore it. I trust it. And it has it's taken me around the world, man. Everything I've done is because I've listened to my gut. That's it. And it's worked out. Jason, the story that you told about the shopping cart reminded me, you know, you've talked before about um, having a service mindset and that that applies to kind of a, a leadership style, a servant leadership style, but it, it probably also plays into your creativity and and how you approach your career. Maybe you could talk about that a bit. It does, man. A lot of people don't realize that I start, you know, when they say I started from the bottom, you know, they say that as a colloquial way I built my own. I literally cut grass, shovel snow and clean people's toilets in their houses. I started as a janitor and a person that most people think doesn't even belong in this country, a person cutting grass and, and shoveling snow. And so when you're in this position of servitude and you're in college and you're doing what people say you should do to be successful, but then people mistreat you because they think your station in life somehow makes you less valuable as a human. 
because I'm cleaning your house, I'm somehow less valuable than you because I'm in this service position, not realizing that the kid cleaning your house is in design school, <laughs> working on himself and, you know, one of the best kids in his class. But it was the fact that I showed up in the form of a mover or a janitor or a lawn care specialist that made people treat me like I didn't matter. I quickly told myself that no matter what station of life I'm in, everyone is deserving of respect. Everyone's deserving of my time. Everyone's deserving of my attention. Everyone's deserving of my best self. I don't care if you're serving me something to eat or if you're the CEO of a company, I'm going to treat you like you matter because you're here, not because of your title or what you look like or who you love or who you pray to. But if you're here and we're occupying this space together at the same time, man, you matter to me because at the end of the day, life is a vapor. And every second you give to a person, you have to make sure that they receive and you give your best because that could be the last moment you or that person has. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't ever want people to have interactions with me where they feel like that was a waste of time. <laughs> you know, that, nah, because time is precious. And so I value mm. people's time. Give me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I ask the question, how are you doing? And I genuinely mean it. <laughs> it's not reflexive. Mm. I genuinely mean, how are you? Are you okay? And that's that's honestly my version of servant leadership. I think if you understand nature, people get confused with the image of Washington on a Potomac as the epitome of leadership. That's false. That's not leadership. That's discipline. People followed him because he was the leader they should follow in a military structure. If you look at nature, the leader of a pack of lions is in the back. They're in the back. They're walking in the back to protect the weak side of their tribe or their group of cubs. They are the ones who are in the back. They're the ones making sure they're protected, that the things that can harm people in the blind spots are covered. That's my form of servant leadership. I don't need to be in front. I don't need to be Washington on the Potomac pointing to where we should go. I'm the dude in the back, cheering everybody on, getting excited for everybody, keeping everybody motivated to keep moving forward. That's how I lead. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash design better today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help H E L P dot com slash design better support for design better comes from uplift desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, 
is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Let's talk about working at Nike, one of the most amazing companies in terms of design opportunities out there. And mm-hmm. you started, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, as an intern, and mm-hmm. you worked really hard, had great ideas. They gave you lots of projects that you know seemed kind of simple, like let's rethink shoelaces, and you knocked it mm-hmm. out of the park. And eventually, Phil Knight himself, you caught his attention. What did you learn about design at Nike that you carry with you every day? Man, you know, it's, it's one phrase that Mr. Knight said to me that has stuck with me my entire life. He said, Jason, the difference between a gold medal and no medal is you and the choices you make. And what he was referring to is that in design, you know, oftentimes we can carry a little bit of arrogance that we know better than the audience that we design for. Like we know better. They'll like this. We know better. This is cool. We know better. But when you think about an Olympic sport, something that happens every four years, and for some people it's only going to happen once in their lifetime, And the fact that they trained for four years for a hundredth of a second difference in getting a medal or not getting anything. And the reason that they lose is because I decided to add some superfluous detail that added grams of weight that slowed them down. Like, it's that simple. Our decisions are the difference between someone being their best self and someone missing these opportunities as creatives. And I carry that with me in every industry I'm in. Like, if I do anything that strokes my ego then it's probably a design that's meant for an audience of one, which is me. And so I try to remove myself from every single process, unless I'm designing for myself as the end user. Most times I'm not. I don't find any joy in that. But when I'm thinking about stuff for kids for Super Heroic, I have to intimately understand the psychology of children and their stress and what they're worried about. I won't benefit from that, but the child will, you know, the family will. So that's what Mr. Knight taught me, man, is, is Nike says it is no me to serve me. But what he told me personally was the difference between no medal and a gold medal is the decisions you make. Never forget that. And it's crazy, man. It comes down to grams. One gram of weight can stop an athlete in the four by one relay or the one or the 100, you know, from actually winning a gold medal. And that's a decision that a designer can control, which is 
insane when you think about that, the power we have with our gifts and talents. Another thing that you did at Nike that is very interesting and inspiring is that you didn't just look to design for inspiration. You spent a lot of time talking to lawyers and people in supply chain and various parts of the company and presumably to try to learn, but based on what you've shared with us today, I assume also to build relationships. Why was that an important thing for you to do? Why not just focus on design and the design team? If I could be frank, I've never fit in. I'm multiracial. You know, I, I stood next to my mom as a kid. My mom's fair skinned. She's black and Jewish. And people will wonder if I was bothering her. Like, why is that little black boy bothering you? So I've never really liked the cool kid club. I didn't like any group that made people feel less than because they did something that others couldn't do. And quite frankly, that is design. That's how we operate sometimes with the cool kids at the table that everybody wishes will acknowledge them to make them feel better. And I noticed that with the operating roles in the company, that they controlled the money, they controlled the supply chain, they controlled the value of how we would be invested in, but they didn't feel like the public actually viewed them as cool or credible for their contributions to Nike. That's not what people cared about. If you say, oh, I'm in supply chain to Nike. What? What does that mean? I'm in design of Nike. Oh my God, you're a legend. I felt like, man, I'm naturally going to be around designers because I'm in design. I don't feel the need to over-index and trying to have all my relationships be formed there because then I become part of the cool kids club. I'm sitting at the cool table at lunch. I'd rather go to the people who are be like, why is the designer trying to talk to the head of finance? That makes no sense. Why is the designer trying to go work in a distribution center in Lockdale in, in Belgium, which is something I did? Why is a designer wanting to eat lunch with the people at the factory, not with the team he traveled with? It's because, like I said, when I was younger, man, I know what it's like to be other. That's been my whole experience, being other. I was a kid in the inner city that was into Japanese anime and manga in the 90s before it became cool. I wanted to be a goonie, you know? <laughs> I <laughs> took apart televisions and radios and, and rebuilt them to become gadgets. I was a blurred. I was a black nerd. I didn't have a group. I became part of every group because my interests were so different. And that's because I was in a hospital and I couldn't play physical sports and I had to find new ways to be a kid. And when you're sitting there and you're, you know, playing with kids who are fighting chemotherapy and kids who are waiting on an organ transplant and you're just there because of a blood infection and you know you might get to go home and they know they won't, you really start to understand the power of acknowledging other people. And so I mm -hmm. felt that in our company, and this ain't no slight to Nike, but I'll just keep it 100 they didn't do a good job of making everybody else in the company outside of design feel valued. Most companies who are led by design don't. And I felt that if I can be a bridge and build meaningful relationships with people who feel overlooked, then that's the type of leader I want to be. And it helped me because as I got to be in more prominent positions, people would always wonder, how the heck do you get that budget? How the heck do you get that approval? What the, how do you know that person? It's because like before that person became the big time executive, I asked them to lunch, to learn about their job and to learn about how my job can help their job. Before they became the VP or the president, they were just a person. And I spent time getting to know that person. And that person doesn't look like me. They're the total opposite, but I found something cool about what they did. And they felt really great that a designer wanted to talk to them as a supply chain person. And I've always tried to do that, man. I don't like bullies. I don't like kicking people when they're down. And I don't like seeing people eat lunch by themselves. I hate it. Jason, last time I, I chatted with you, you're deep into superheroic, and I was just blown away by the mission and, and your inspiration for that. I know things have changed since then, so maybe you could you could tell us a little bit about 
what you've learned through that process of creating Superheroic and, and kind of where you are today? Man, Superheroic was, it was, uh, as I call people, one, one of my favorite musical artists is John Coltrane. And in the lining notes of A Love Supreme, John Coltrane talks about, you know, his greatest endeavor to create this album for audience of one. So I created Superheroic for audience of one. And that audience obviously was, you know, what I talk about my faith, but it was, and I say that explicitly because the outcome is an outcome. It doesn't affect how I feel about myself. doesn't affect how I feel about my efforts. What I put into that company with my heart, my time, my talent, and then the brilliant people that followed that mission and joined and supported and helped to contribute it. It was a meaningful moment in time that allowed me to show my industry what's possible. You know, what's completely possible when you serve an underserved demographic of people because kids were overlooked. Kids were cogs in the system until they became 15, 16, then they became recruited cogs and then they became endorsed cogs. They weren't necessarily individuals who were being poured into in an authentic, genuine way that didn't directly benefit the company that was talking to them. All the companies that say they care about kids, you got to understand it's attached heavily to an agenda that is effectively meant to get them to be endorsers down the line. But for me, I know that kids will outgrow our product. I know that they will outgrow our content. I knew that they will outgrow our experience. And I was perfectly fine with that because I felt like if I could be on the right side of using play and creativity as a form of prevention for mental health, physical health, emotional health, and equity building, you know, and gender diversity and gender neutrality and all the things we stood for, then maybe just maybe that the ideals and ethos of Super Rough will live on in tomorrow's leaders. So when they're running their companies, they're running for office, they're leading in their community, they, they look back and remember, when I was a kid, this is what I learned from Super Rough. So for me, it was never a strategy of trying to own the kids market. Nah, man, I wanted to spark the thought that you choose if you want to become the protagonist of your own narrative. You're not an antagonist in your narrative. You get to choose your adventure. You get to choose the end of your journey. Jason, one thing that I find really fascinating about the way that you work and, again, that, that work-life integration that you have kind of built into your existence, you said, all my heroes have mastered themselves. And I know you're a big fan of Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism and lots of folks who think very intentionally about who they are, they're reflective about their life. And in many ways, they bring that design thinking to the way they live. It occurred to me hearing you talk about this, you might be your greatest product design. Do you think of like designing your life as a product design experience? It's funny. It's funny you said that because I actually, um, I do. I write a creative direction for myself every couple of years. You know, when people say set your five-year goals, I actually set like a three to five-year brand strategy for myself. And the reason I do that is I have to consistently check in and make sure that I'm not believing the hype about myself because that's temporary. That's a very alluring drug is arrogance, which parades as confidence. I didn't suffer from confidence. I suffered from a lack of self-worth. And I assumed achievement would help people value me more. I felt like achievement was social camouflage. Like somehow people would treat me better, not judge me if I had this degree, had this job. It was a matter of survival. If I wear a Stanford sweater, will someone not treat me badly if I'm in a place they think I shouldn't be? So that was my orientation with self-worth and achievement until I started to deliberately craft creative direction, which is honestly always driven around two concepts. One is Kronos and the other is Kairos. 
Kronos is the origins of chronological time. It's what they talk about when they look at linear progressive models that are honestly built in our country on an agrarian calendar, which is essentially productivity. We go to school and then we take the summer off because that's based on how people used to live when they had to farm and you have to work on your parents' farm. It's not really about education. It's about the facilitation of you know your schedule throughout the day moving from point A to point B. I switched my philosophy to Kairos time, which is the opportune time to take action. So I look at everything I do strategically and intentionally is through the lens of what I call asterisk opportunities. I do one thing in the center that gives me momentum in multiple directions. And as that center shifts with the changing ebbs and flows in the market, those tentacles in other industries help me to transition smoothly into other industries. It's why I was able to jump from shoes to jump into academia, to jump into hardware, to software, to venture. It's because I'm always willing to tell myself, I don't know what this is. I'm not good at it, but I want to learn who's good at it and learn why they're good at it. And if I can match some of their style of play to my style of play, because it's not about positions. I've studied this. It's really about your style of contribution. Then I can evolve and make my opportunities different for me. So I don't get jealous when I see someone do something sooner or younger. I'm like, wow, what did that person do? And how can I apply it to my game? And I think if I was to pick one hero that defines my mindset, and I'm so glad that the world finally is recognizing this man as an athlete, is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee I feel like I have more of his mindset because Bruce Lee looked at every discipline in martial arts and he figured out what was efficient and what wasn't efficient. And he only kept what worked and he discarded what didn't work. That's how he formulated Jeet Kudo, which is the beginnings of mixed martial art. So when they talk about a mixed media artist, they usually associate that with fine arts. I'm a mixed media designer, which means I'm going to pull from data science. I'm going to pull from robotics. I'm going to pull from governance and literature. And I want to learn a little bit about a lot of topics to see what works and then apply it to my own style of contribution. And that takes a high degree of intentionality and design and strategy. And as creatives, you know, we get into this habit of doing our best work for other people instead of saying, well, how can I help myself be better? You have to design the life you want. I tell my daughter this all the time because I think it's really important that if you're a father with a daughter to speak to your, your daughter as if she is a boss or a leader, I tell her, look, you do not get your worth. You get what you negotiate. And I I live by that. And in order for you to negotiate something that you feel happy with, you have to be willing to be honest about the areas in your life, the things in your skill set that needs to be improved. And that's through introspection and reflection and efficiency. And that's the basis of a good creative direction. A good strategy is like, man, who's the target audience? How do we serve them? What's the problem we're solving? How can we uniquely be the ones that solve that? How can we solve this over time so we scale our solutions? That's how I look at my life, man. At the end of it all, I just want people to be like, yo, Jason is a dude that only competed with himself and was super loyal and tried his best to see as many people succeed around him as possible because he just got a kick out of watching people do things they never thought they can do. That's really it, man. I just get happy when I see people win. It's such a good feeling to see that. One last question for you, Jason. So last time we spoke, you were on video and you're not right now, but you had a huge bookcase behind you. And you're like, yeah, I read all these books. And you had some great recommendations about how you had Marcus Aurelius, which Aaron mentioned earlier, The Emperor's Handbook. You mentioned mm-hmm. Thinking Fast and Slow. You mentioned Stumbling on Winds. So just curious, any updates to your recommended reading list that you'd throw out to our audience right now? You know, I'm a big fan 
of history. I think you guys know that about me. Like I love history, world history. And there's a book that I'm currently reading about Africans in the Americas, pre-Columbian history. A lot of people don't know that the oldest set of bones found on the continents of the Americas are actually of an African woman in what's now called Brazil over 12,000 years ago. You know, so when people talk about this notion of Black history beginning at slavery, it's actually false. It began 12,000 years ago when people actually were here in what we now call Brazil and they migrated north into Central and then North America. And so the reason why I tell people that is because color was made up. It was made up to separate us. There's no such thing as race. Back then, it was just tribes and groups of people and civilizations, and it was various degrees of melanation based on where you regionally lived. It had nothing to do with this false classification. And the more we just break it down to the basics of how the human body works, the more we can all accept the fact and enjoy the fact that we all come from the same place, literally. Mitochondria DNA has proven this. We all come from some black woman in Africa at some point, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and we all kind of walked out of that land bridge that's now called Israel into the rest of the world. And that's the beautiful thing, man. We're all cousins. We're all family from one tribe. We just find ways to divide ourselves. So the books that I've been geeking out over lately have been books that talk about pre-Columbian history that does not account for the world pre-colorism. Because colorism is a new concept. It is not something that is ancient. It is a fairly new concept. We've just come to accept it as the way we live, but it's not the way people live for longer periods of time prior to this. And that's what I hope we get back to is discovering how much we have in common and how we're all interrelated and interconnected versus consistently pointing out the differences because it gets tiresome. I just want to be around good people. I just want to see people happy. And I just want everybody to feel like their kids are getting good educations and the healthcare is not trying to kill them and the cost of living is reasonable and the food supply is natural and organic and the water is clean and the air is clear. If we can all have that, man, then that's, that's beautiful. Because if some of us are hurting, I look at it like all of us are hurting. And just as much as this moment we're in is important for people to recognize the atrocities that happened to Black Americans, I mean, I, I feel deeply for homeless Americans, which are inclusive of every single demographic of people. Every call I'm on, I always try to let people know, please pay attention to the fact that homeless people are disappearing. Where are they going? No one's talking about this vulnerable population of people. They're disappearing from cities. They're disappearing from the media cycle. They're disappearing from the conversation. And we're facing the largest mass eviction of people this coming September and October that our country has ever seen. Post-2008, there were 10 million people that were displaced. Post-COVID, there's going to be 23 million people that are now homeless in our country. You do the math on that, we're only 330 million people. That's, that's, you can see what the percentage is of that. That's scary to me, that close to 30 million families will now not have a place to live. That's the thing I want people to pay attention to. When you know that we're all from the same place, then we can all equally want the same things for each other without having to say like, yeah, we get along. No, you know, getting along is a matter of preference. But love and respect, that's a matter of humanity. And we're all worthy of love and respect. You don't have to like me to respect me. I don't have to like you to respect you. But I think that's the thing that I want to impress upon folks. And the reason I read these books is to not find strength in myself, but to find community in others. And that's really what I'm all about. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast and bringing this perspective. It's super valuable on multiple levels. You may not be smelling your own cologne, but we are. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining the show. Uh, thank you, guys.